0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter five. The very time that we were praying this morning for the persecuted church around the world, armed man was in Sutherland, Texas, shooting, and killing our brothers there. Last I heard, about twenty-seven dead, thirty-six or so wounded, which pretty much encompasses the whole church, as far as I understand it. A very small church there. Remember them in our prayers tonight. In fact, why don't we just begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are conscious of these brothers and sisters who have lost so much. We ask, Lord, for your comfort and for your guidance and direction. I know that they are grieving tonight for their loss and for those who are wounded. We pray, Lord, for your healing hand hard for us to understand why people do things like that, but we know that we live in an evil world. And so, Lord, I pray your hand of protection uh, on these people as they recuperate, and, Lord, we pray for your strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, The Authority of the Word of God. It seems that the biblical teaching of absolute Moral standards of God's word have fallen on hard times. We continually in our day hear the idea espoused that because times have changed, the Bible does not fit our day any longer and that we need to make it relevant. We even hear of individuals, pastors who grew up in fundamental Bible-believing homes who now take a position that... uh, We need to make the Word of God more relevant. The truth, of course, is just the opposite. We need a clear restatement of the authority of God's Word today, just as when Jesus spoke the words that were recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. In our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to note how Jesus has increasingly made his points more personal as he goes along in the Beatitudes, which are the first 12 verses, uh, Jesus used the third person. He said, blessed are those who do this. But then, concerning persecution and speaking of being salt and light, Jesus uses the second person. He says, blessed are you, all of you, when you do this. But now, in what follows in Chapter 5 are applications. And the application switches to the first person when Jesus says, But I tell you, this is what you need to do. I want you to notice what Jesus says beginning verse 17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds... The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus draws our attention to two important relationships here. First is his own relationship to the law and then secondly the relationship of his followers to the law. And again in examining these two things we're going to look at first at the meaning and then we're going to look at the application. First of all there's Christ in the law, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will not by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. When Jesus says, do not think that I come to destroy the law, we can Assume that Jesus says that because that is exactly what people are saying. That he has come to destroy the law. From the very beginning of his ministry, people have been struck by the authority with which Jesus spoke. And the things that Jesus is teaching are so radical, it is literally turning their established religious traditions upside down. So think about what it is ...that he is doing that is upsetting them and upsetting their law. First of all, Jesus' relationship to women. Men, especially rabbis, didn't have anything to do with women. They, outside the home, they didn't have contact with women if they could help it. Secondly, Jesus was known to associate with sinners... He made no bones about the fact that he came to reach sinners. He uh, healed on the Sabbath, breaking one of their man-made traditions. He forgave people on his own authority. He didn't say in the name of Rabbi so-and-so. He didn't even say uh, you know, anything like that. He said, I forgive you. You're, you stand forgiven. He uh, had the audacity to to uh, throw out some legitimate businessmen out of the temple. Well, at least they were thought by many to be legitimate businessmen. They were making change in the offering. It is only natural then that some would wonder about the correlation between Jesus and his authority and the authority of the law of Moses. Some are even suggesting that Jesus is teaching that doing away with the law which was handed down by God to Moses. Instead, Jesus says he stands in line with the law and the prophets. But there are two crucial questions we need to answer in order to understand what Jesus means here. The first question is, what does Jesus mean when he uses the word law? The word law could mean the Ten Commandments. But it was also used to describe the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. There's the term the law and the prophets, which is also used to describe what we would today call the Old Testament. But it can also mean the oral or scribal law. Now, this is where you really want to pay attention The scribal or oral law was a vast collection of rules and regulations that defined how you were supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. By the third century, a summary of those oral laws was written, and it was called the Mishnah. And to that eventually was added a series of commentaries called the Talmud. If you aren't confused yet, just hang on. We'll get there. So, the common Jew living in Jesus' day, the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses had been expanded to a ridiculous series of petty rules. They had amended the Ten Commandments by this point into a list of 248 Commandments And 365 prohibitions, so 613 laws. Now, who could remember, much less keep all of those? What does it mean that Jesus says that he fulfills the law? The word that he used literally means to fill. So what does it mean that Jesus will fill the law? Well, Jesus, first of all, fulfilled the law by living out the law perfectly. It is a fact that Jesus could only become the substitute for mankind's sin by keeping the law perfectly. He could have no sins of his own when he went to the cross in order to live vicariously for us, that he lived completely without sin. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but is in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he fulfilled the law by keeping it completely. Jesus also fulfilled the law by meeting the demands of the law concerning sin. Because he he lived free of sin, he ultimately became the sinless substitute for mankind's sin. In so doing, he satisfied the demands of the law concerning sin. He did it by becoming the sinless sacrifice for sin. But I don't think that is really what he means here when he says fulfilled. Because it is not the actions of Jesus that are being considered, but rather his teachings. Jesus came in support of the law. He once again reintroduced the truth... That the people seem to have forgotten the law, the Ten Commandments were never intended to save man. The word of God was intended to point man to his sinfulness and his need for a savior. It was not intended to show a way to earn salvation but to show the impossibility of earning salvation. I think one of the most important scriptures concerning explaining to someone about the relation of the law to salvation is found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. And I'm reading it from a modern translation, the, the message, because I want you to get its meaning. It says, The law was like those Greek tutors which, with which you are familiar. To escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction. Making sure the children will really get to the place that they set out for. What he's saying is the law was that kind of a tutor. its job was to take the person to the teacher. The law was to serve the function with man pointing him first to his need of a savior and then pointing to him to that savior. Jesus also fulfilled the prophets. From Galatians 1:1 to Philippians to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6, the Old Testament is about Jesus. First and all the way through. It is his story. It was inspired by Christ, it points to Christ, and it ultimately is fulfilled by Christ. From the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he has taken great pains to point out that Jesus came in direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, not one jot, not one tittle will by by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, I don't want to make this unnecessarily difficult, but remember that what Jesus said was recorded in Greek but he is referring to the Old Testament scripture which was written in Hebrew right Got, you're with me so far so we have an English translation of a Greek word describing something that happened in Hebrew if you're not confused yet just hang on <clears throat> I'll try to simplify a jot an iota is probably a reference to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a yodic, Y-O-D. And it looks something like an apostrophe. The tittle is probably a seraph, referring to one of those tiny little hooks or projections which distinguish some Hebrew letters from others. Let me give you an English equivalent, if I could. It's like the difference between a small C and a small E, one stroke of the pen. So, it would be the equivalent of us today saying, not the dotting of one I or the crossing of one T will pass until everything is written that the word of God is fulfilled. Now, look at the application. First of all, we need to understand that Scripture is enduring. Time and time again, when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he says, it was written. And I might stop at this point and tell you, next week, when we look at the following passages, he's going to make it even more difficult for those who are with him to understand because he'll say... The word of God says, you have heard. And then he says, but I say. You have heard that it's wrong to murder, but I say it's wrong for you to have hate in your heart. You have heard that it's said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say you should not lust in your heart. Time and again, he says it was written, which means it was written, it is written, and it stands written. It will always be written. The scripture And this may be hard for us to just get our mind around. God says the scripture is more enduring than the universe. Because he says in Matthew twenty four, thirty five, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It also tells us that we do not have the right to pick and choose the parts that we don't like from the Word of God. Christians, there is a reminder that we're not to free to just choose those parts of the Bible that we like. We can't say, well, I just want to live by the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like all those references to the blood. I want to escape those. You cannot say, well, I really want to like to study prophecy, but I don't want to be bothered with all that, those ethical teachings You can't say, I like the New Testament, but I don't concern myself with what the Old Testament has to say. We can't say, well, I like these things that Jesus said, but I don't like these other things. And I don't really think these are his teachings. And we have seen that over and over and over down through the years as men have tried to take it upon themselves to say, these are the teachings of Jesus and these are not the teachings of Jesus. You really don't have the right to do that. We really must take it all. The Apostle Paul speaks to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he puts it this way, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The first part of this has been looking at uh, Christ and his connection to the law. Now, secondly, we look at Christians and their connection to the law, beginning verse 19. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. The word therefore introduces what Jesus now says as the application of what he has just stated. First of all, what are the commandments that he's referring to? He says those who keep the commandments. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments Commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I believe that when Jesus says this, he doesn't have a specific commandment or even a specific list of commandments in mind, but rather he is speaking in general about the moral precepts that are laid out in the Bible. And with that in mind, he goes on to talk about the responsibility of the people of God to live in accordance with the great precepts that God has laid out. Jesus warns us in the New Testament that it is a very, very serious offense when we should cause someone to stumble in their spiritual walk because of what we have said or because of what we do in our lives. What does it mean then when God says certain people will be great in the kingdom. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The one who breaks the moral precepts of God's law by either their words or their actions, and teach others to break break them, will be the least in the kingdom. Now, whether we ever stop to realize it or not, when we live with utter disregard for what God says is right. And what God says is wrong, we're teaching the same to others who watch us and hear us, even if we don't open our mouths. But those who keep the moral precepts of God's law and either by their words or actions teach others the importance of keeping them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I like that word great here. It is the word mega. I believe that when God says one will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven, we can believe it. What is the righteousness that Jesus is calling for? The righteousness that Jesus describes in verse 21 is one of those verses that really disturbs us. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't bother us all that bad because we have read the New Testament and we know that the scribes and the Pharisees, many of them, not all of them, many of them were hypocrites and they did not carry out what they taught. But to the average man on the street in Jesus' day, the statement that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes And the Pharisees was shocking. It would be equivalent to us saying today, your righteousness is going to have to be better than all the pastors, missionaries, and seminary professors in the world. What they came away with in hearing this, their reaction was despair. How can we possibly do so? If they can't do so... If their righteousness is not good enough, how are we ever going to be righteous enough? Now, please don't misunderstand me on this very crucial point. Jesus is not saying you can earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. He is not saying that. Even if you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. But he is dealing with those who thought their righteousness could gain them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is, in fact, explaining, in the most dramatic terms possible, the impossibility of salvation apart from grace. Now look at the application. The point is not that right living or righteousness is unimportant. The fact is, right living is very important. But what Jesus is saying is that it will, that you can never earn your way into heaven. And the only righteousness that counts at all is that which is based on heartfelt obedience. We live the right way, not in order to be saved, but as evidence of the fact that we are saved. But more to the point in our day, is that the recognition that people on the whole are experts in justifying themselves. Are they not? People have this very unique ability to convince themselves no matter what they have done, they're okay. Think about it. How many times have you heard someone say, Well, it wasn't the best choice, but it'll be okay. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have done so-and-so, but it's okay. It's not like I do it all the time. When people excuse themselves or they justify their behavior, they are refusing to recognize a standard higher than themselves. One of the major problems of our times is that people have lost the desire to appeal to a standard outside of themselves For personal righteousness. But in fact that really is nothing new. Judges chapter 21. Verse 25. Describes a type of situation in the Old Testament days. It says in those days there was no king in Israel. Now see if this doesn't sound thoroughly modern. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that sound like it just came off today's newspaper? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see the same thing in our own day. Where there is no absolute standard, each individual then is free to develop his or her own system of right and wrong. The problem with that, of course, is... What if someone decides it's okay for them to take your possessions or to kill you? Who's to say they're wrong if there's no absolute truth? There's where the idea <clears throat> that no absolute truth ultimately leads. We even have a term for it in our day, relativism. There is a price to pay <clears throat> if you reject the standards of Of God's word. Because when there is no absolute truth. People make up their own standards. And they compare themselves to it. And surprise, surprise. They always measure up. That's one of the best features of your own personal standard of righteousness. It's custom made to fit your own idiosyncrasies. It would probably be better to call it idiot syncrasies because that's what it would be. Plain crazy to think that we can come up with our own standard and that is any significant value. So, how does our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, as I've already said earlier, the scribes and the Pharisees have come to up with a list of seemingly endless minute ways of externally living out the law. The Ten Commandments say thou should keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. And So they've come up with laws that say this is how far you can travel. This is what you can take. This is what you cannot do. This is what you can do. And they've lost the law in the process. Eventually Or the Pharisees, everything became focused on living in compliance to a list of external patterns of religious life. We have that in our day. It's called legalism. What Jesus is saying is, I'm calling you to a level of behavior that is more than just conformity to a list. True righteousness begins in the heart. In verse 21, Jesus begins to apply and to illustrate What he means when he says that the righteousness of his followers must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. I talked about that a few moments ago when I said, you know, Jesus said the word of God says thou shalt murder, not murder. And then he goes on to say, but that begins when you have hate in your heart. And he's saying this is how our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They think they've done well if they just didn't kill anybody. But it's okay if they hate everybody that they come in contact with, or it's okay they say I've never committed adultery, but they may have lust in their heart continually. In our country, the United States judicial system, the highest court in the land, is called the United States Supreme Court. Once your case is heard and decided upon there, there is no higher court of appeal. In the same fashion, the Word of God is the Supreme Court of all Supreme Courts. The Word of God stands absolute and unchangeable. The Word of God stands written beyond any alteration or recall. The Word of God is even more permanent, as as I pointed out, than the universe. Even though the heavens and the earth shall pass away, nothing from this book will pass away until everything that it speaks of has come to pass. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so thankful for these who have been faithful to come out tonight. I pray that you'd help us to see the importance on standing on the authority of your word. Not because I said so, but because your word says so. And to acknowledge the difficulties in our world when we allow those standards to be removed your word stands and it will always stand and help us as your people to stand firmly behind your word we realize it's not always easy and the things that your word says are sometimes difficult but lord help us to have the faith that we need to stand in a world that's constantly changing, a world that really needs to know that there is a standard, a standard that is unchanging, Then know that there is such a thing as a right and a wrong, some things that will always be right, some things that will always be wrong. So, Lord, help us as your people to be people of your book. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just remind you.